This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, Jonathan Stoddard shares on how to train elders and deacons. Mr. Stoddard is the pastor of Jordan Valley Church in West Jordan, Utah. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Jonathan Stoddard shares insights on training officers. Uh, yeah, good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Stoddard, and it's good to see a pretty full room here. So that's encouraging. Uh, just a little bit personally, Zach already covered a lot of it. Um, been at the church I'm at for nine years. I came there. I went to seminary at Westminster in Philadelphia. Me and my wife are both from the West and wanted him to move back West. Went to this church in just West Jordan, Utah, south of Salt Lake City uh, to do a church planning apprenticeship. Uh, and quickly that church planning apprenticeship uh, turned into helping manage an imploding church as the pastor ended up having to step down and later uh, left ministry. And I ended up becoming the pastor there. Uh, three years of uh, dealing with that each year got worse and worse uh, until we lost, uh, over that time, all our elders and deacons until we ended up relaunching the church uh, in January of 2017. I felt like either we need to close the church down uh, or basically give it another go. Uh, we did give it another go, and God has been incredibly uh, gracious and uh, just good to us in that time. One of the neatest, uh, most amazing things in those, these last few years has been over half of our growth uh, in the church has come through conversions. Uh, and one of the most common types of baptisms have been household baptisms, which has given me a whole new way to look at the book of Acts when uh, we see a mom and dad profess faith, get baptized, and a couple kids get baptized as covenant children, maybe one or two making their own profession of faith. Uh, God has been incredibly good to us. And I share all that because I think central to that has been uh, establishing healthy leadership at the church. Uh, with elders and deacons. One of the things I'll talk about is I think it's almost impossible for the health of the church to rise above the health of its leadership. Uh, That's a big topic, and we're just going to look at one narrow section of that. Um, So let me just give you a couple vignettes as we get started. A couple weeks ago, I turned 40, and my wife threw me a big birthday party uh, to celebrate. It was awesome. We had uh, a bunch of 
friends there. We had a bunch of kids there. It was perfect weather, spring in Utah. Uh, we had a taco truck, and we even had a bungee run where we had competitions between age groups. I won the over 40 category, uh, which is my claim to fame. Uh, and when she was planning it, she asked me, who do you want to invite to your birthday party? Which kind of threw me off because I hadn't thought of inviting anyone to my birthday party since I was about 15. And I quickly realized, as I thought of it, the people that are on the top of that list are the elders and deacons at our church and their families. They're the ones uh, that I want to celebrate with. Uh, recently, a pastor asked me, uh, as probably many of you uh, get asked this question, who are those people uh, that you feel most safe speaking to, that can ask you hard questions, uh, that if you need to confess that you're struggling or a sin, that you feel like you could go to and share that, uh, and they would deal with it with care and grace. Uh, and I thought about that for a moment, and the first people that came to mind were the elders at our church. Uh, they are some of the people that I trust most for caring for my soul. And I know that's incredibly rare, but I think that's probably how it should be. One other thing, for church budgeting, uh, when we did that relaunch, uh, one of the things we did was we changed our budget so that it would mirror, I kind of broke up my time based on how, much, how, how many hours I spend in different categories of the budget into percentages to kind of see where all that goes. Uh, so for instance, 41% of my week was spent on things related to the worship service, 30% for discipleship. Uh, and at that point, 27% of my time uh, was spent on administrative type tasks that we all have to do. Well, that, those categories stayed the same until this last fall when I was talking to our bookkeeper and she thought, you know, maybe I should take another look at those categories. I redid it and I noticed that that administrative time had dropped from 27% to 18%, which works its way out to about four hours of additional work for ministry uh, each week. And our church had almost doubled in size in that time, which just brings a lot more administrative needs. And so as I looked at what led to that drop, I realized the biggest reason was because we had good deacons. Uh, when I first did that breakdown, we didn't have any deacons. Uh, now we have three, actually we're about to have five. Uh, and they were not just making an impact on our church, but were actually freeing up four hours a week for me uh, to focus on the ministry of the word. And so the question to ask all of you is, does that describe the relationship that you have with your church leaders? And unfortunately, I'm sure some of you do have that, but unfortunately that seems to be rare. Uh, there's often conflict. There can be a, a difficulty in getting them engaged or on the same page. Uh, there can be difficulty where they may be great friends, but, but don't really feel like they're partners in ministry. And as I said, rarely will a church's health rise above the health of its leadership. Not just the pastor, but the session, the leadership in the church. And sometimes, and I'm sure with certain people in here, it feels like it is almost impossible to change the leadership in your church. Uh, and with all that's happened over the past years, that's probably put some of you in an incredible pressure cooker. And so I'm sure there are many in this room who feel like you are about to drown. Uh, and if that's the case, this probably isn't the most helpful seminar for you, but maybe what you need to be reminded of is God's word to the Apostle Paul when he asked for that thorn to be removed from his flesh. And he writes, each time God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. 
Uh, and if any of you are in those situations, I'd be happy to talk with you more uh, and even pray with you afterwards. Well, creating a healthy leadership culture in a church is a much bigger task than I can do in a 50-minute seminar. But I want to cover one of the key elements for that to create that healthy leadership culture. And that is training good elders and deacons. Now, I'm not an expert. In fact, I've only run through this program that I'm going to tell you all two times. Uh, I have a lot to learn, but it has been so fruitful, and I know so many guys struggle with it that I felt like perhaps it would be helpful for others. And I'm sure even many here, you could uh, teach me something, which I'd be happy to hear that feedback in the Q&A. So here's what I want to cover in this seminar. I want to provide you with a template for creating a training program for elders and deacons that will help foster a healthy leadership culture in your church. Uh, I want to be very practical. I want to make this one of the most practical seminars you can get here at, at GA. Uh, I'm actually going to give you uh, the whole packet that we give uh, to our elders and deacon candidates, and you can take that and feel free to modify it as you want. Well, here's how we're going to break up the rest of our time. First, I want to look at the role of elders and deacons just to get a couple good things in the foundation. Then I want to walk through the training process and kind of principles of it and then get very practical. I'm going to address a couple common questions that people have. And my goal is to leave at least 10 minutes, 15 minutes to hear questions from you because I'm sure there's going to be a lot uh, based on what I bring up. So first, the role of elders and deacons. And what I want to do here is look just briefly at Acts 6, which I think is probably one of the key passages. I'm sure you all are familiar with this. Uh, and I know there's a debate as to whether those seven who were chosen were actually deacons or not. I don't think that matters because none of us are apostles either. <laughs> and what it shows us, though, is that whatever titles those folks had, depending on you know, what era the church is in, uh, there is this fundamental distinction and roles for work of the word ministry and works of service ministry. So with that, let me just read the passage. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. And then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So, now I want you to think of, for a moment, what are some of the reactions the apostles could have had to this complaint? And to help you think through it, I want to update the scenario to modern days where it's, say, it's 11.54 a.m., your worship service has just ended, and there as you're leaving the sanctuary is a church member waiting for you. <laughs> and they come up to you and say, Pastor, you know, there's this new family in the congregation, and they don't have any family in the area, and they just had a baby, their first child, and they are mightily struggling. They aren't getting any sleep. And why is it we didn't do a meal train for them? How do you respond to that? <laughs> I'm sure every one of you have been in a similar situation. What's your go-to response? Maybe it's you feel guilty. Okay, that's right. I'll, I'll take care of that, which is probably the natural reaction for most of us who tend to be people pleasers, I fall into this category. Right? Your first reaction is, oh shoot, that's another thing I gotta do, even though I don't know when I have time to do it, but somehow I'll try to fit it in, and you feel that guilt. 
What's the problem if that had been the apostles' reaction? Well, they say it in the text. It would distract from the ministry of the word. Right? And we don't have time here, but if you look through those first several chapters of Acts, you see almost every single time the growth of the church is linked to the preaching of the word. And for the apostles to step away from that, it would have undermined the very fuel for what is leading to that growth in the church. Another thing is that it would have made the apostles too much like Jesus. Jesus was the consummate elder and deacon, right? He was able to manage both ministry of the word and a ministry of service. And, but none of us are Jesus, which will either, then if we try to do all that, lead to burnout, or for those few exceptionally gifted individuals who can pull it off at least for a little bit, it will lead to people probably worshiping you more than Jesus. We need to know our limitations. What's another response? Not my problem. <laughs> this is probably the response, the longer you're in ministry and the more you know, jaded you get and less concerned about pleasing people, you say, go talk to so-and-so about that. That's not my problem. You deal with that. What's the problem if that was their reaction? It's actually the same problem as if they had that first reaction. The ministry of the word would have still been hindered because the grumblings and murmurings of this food distribution issue would have overtaken and been a distraction to the ministry of the word. And so what's their proposal? You all know it. We need to create a new role for managing this. This is a real problem, but it can't be a problem that we're leading, that we're coming up with the solution for. The overall, and this is, I think, a key principle from this passage, the overall health of a church cannot rise above its elder and deacon ministry. Right? And so what that means is if you have an incredible word ministry, but your deacon ministry is suffering, well, all that extra capacity is going to just be spilling over and go to, to waste because there's not that deacon ministry to support it. Uh, conversely, if you have incredible diaconal ministry, but lacking word ministry, all of that excess capacity for diaconal ministry is going to go to waste because there's not the word ministry to support it. We need both healthy word and deed ministry. And when both are running well, what happens? Acts 6, 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And large numbers of priests became obedient to the faith. Alexander Strauch writes, I am convinced that Acts 6, 4 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament for church elders. Elders are so easily sidetracked. So many good things demand time and energy. There are always many people who need counsel, programs that need administering, and meetings to attend. And thus, the shepherd's time for prayer, Bible study, and teaching the word of God is slighted. So that's the foundation. We need both. I want to talk just briefly about teaching and ruling elders. Our book of church order says there is one class for the office of elder, but then we have both a form of teaching and ruling elders. And I think one of the difficulties is when you go into the details, there is an entirely different training process for if someone is on the track to be a teaching elder versus being a ruling elder. Right? And so they are supposedly the same class of elder, but they're trained in an entirely different way, which I think can lead to mismanaged expectations. It's almost as if most officer training that I've observed you know, ends up being a lot of talk on the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Book of Church Order, 
but it doesn't actually get into the practice of ministry. It would be like giving someone a bunch of books on how to neuter a dog, and then never, but never giving them the actual practical application of doing it with feedback. And then one day you drop off your puppy and say, hey, I'll be back this afternoon uh, if you can just take care of that for me, right? It's going to go interesting. <laughs> would a congregation elect a pastor without having heard them preach? Of course not. Even if you're hiring an assistant pastor, I guarantee you are at least finding some sermons that they have online and listening to those. You want to see them in ministry before you call them. Well, why then do we so often present elders and deacons to our congregation for election without the congregation having observed them in the roles they're being called to? That leads to some of this disjunction. We need to be training our officers for ministry. I think it's great that uh, Greenville has this program. I've never heard of something like that. That helps. We need to really up the ante for what we expect of our elders and deacons and equip them for ministry. In some ways, the program here I'm going to show you was, it's incredibly condensed, but I said if we were to distill seminary into a short period of time, what would that look like? And I want to give that to our officer candidates. I even took the Bible exam that we use for guys that are getting uh, ordained in our presbytery, and I give that to our officer candidates, right? We want them to know the Bible as well as the teaching elders. Let's look at the role of deacon. The Book of Church Order, chapter uh, 7, paragraph 2 says, the office of deacon is not one of rule, but rather of service, both to the physical and spiritual needs of people. Now, I think that's correct, but I think we need to also make a distinction between rule and leadership. So the office of deacon is not one of rule, but it is still one of leadership. And I think this is where so many people get tripped up, because often what happens in our churches is the folks that are there early on Sundays to help get all the chairs set up and get everything ready for worship end up being deacons. But at the same time, they are probably not the best deacons because they might not be good leaders. And part of the confusion stems from the word, as I'm sure many of you all know, that the Greek word for deacon is used in a ton of different ways, right? It's translated as service, ministry, waiting tables, refers to Christ's service, all kinds of different things. And the way that I've come to think about it is that it's helpful to distinguish that every single Christian is called to be a lowercase d deacon, But certain qualified individuals may be called to be uppercase D deacons, which are those who help manage and lead the ministry. If you go back to Acts 6, I think this is incredibly important to see. Certain widows were not getting food, and it was a complex problem that required leadership in order to solve. The apostles weren't saying, hey, we need some more volunteers to help stuff sandwich bags to give them to the people, right? That was not, it was not an issue of just service of volunteers. It was an issue of having the leadership to make, to address the issue and find out a good solution. This is why they needed people who were trusted, mature, godly, capable of dealing with this very delicate organizational, cultural, and ethnic challenges in that early church. And I discovered this myself. When I uh, stepped into my role, we had a number of deacons who were great at kind of lowercase deacon work, but had never been trained or even called to that uppercase D deacon work. 
And what I discovered was when you have that, well, the congregation is not going to go to those people for the needs that they need in ministry or with service, right? Because they don't see them as leaders. And what will happen is the congregation will go to things that are actually diaconal work, but they'll go to the people that they see as leaders in the church. And if it's not the deacons, it will often be the pastor, right? And so suddenly, what you have there is the exact problem of Acts 6, right? And what was the solution? They needed leaders to be able to deal with that. Deacons don't exist in the church just to give you more people to set up and take down chairs after the service. They are there to take certain leadership problems off your plate so that you can focus on the ministry of the word. So that's the foundation. Uh, What I want to do now is start to get more practical. What is a way that you can help train uh, men for this job? First, let me talk about nominations. A common mistake I found is that churches make the nomination process almost the, the, the vetting process. We make nominations too hard. And I actually think you should make the nomination process as easy as possible. Don't make the nominations a vetting stage. Right? We need to get away from the idea that is in many churches that you know, most everyone who is nominated will probably make it through the training and then presented for election. Instead, I think the better way is to get our congregation to be willing to nominate folks that they, they maybe see you know, some promise in, but they have concerns about maybe, or they aren't quite sure if they're qualified, but to trust the process that our church puts forth where that we will answer those questions that the congregation, you know, the individual doesn't know. We will give the congregation opportunities to observe these men in ministry, and then we will present them to you to vote on after you have watched them in ministry so that you can actually vote, not just by trusting what the session says, but vote because you have seen them doing ministry in the same way that you would expect for calling any teaching elder. Also, I think it's good to not require the person's permission in order to get nominated. I think that's a common practice, right? Check with the person, and if they're okay with it, then you can write their name on the card and drop it in as a submission. It's way too easy for people to reject a nomination, often for unbiblical reasons uh, or for unfounded fears. And then what happens is people hear that maybe there's uh, an individual that a lot of people think could do it, Somebody asks them and say, no, I'm, I'm not interested. And then just through conversations, other people know they're not interested. And so here is somebody that maybe could have gotten 10 nominations, but gets zero because they said they weren't originally interested. And here's the issue with that. Uh, well, let me get to that in a second. Here's another reason why I think we should make nominations easy. People will have individuals that they want to nominate but they don't get the chance to nominate them because they didn't get to talk to them, right, and ask them. Uh, Maybe they're out of town or they just missed each other at church. Uh, Additionally, if a person knows they aren't morally qualified and they are asked if they want to serve, it puts them in an awkward position to give a reason why they don't think they can serve, which almost forces them to half lie sometimes and say, well, I need to work on family issues or or this or that, right? And, And instead, you can take some of that shame out of their place and let the session deal with it so they can get nominated. But as you vet these guys, they can share those reasons why, and often the session knows anyways. And then they can drop out at that point uh, as well, which I think works better for everybody. You want to get a lot of nominations. 
And this is one of the ways that God uses to show people that they might be called to this ministry. So a a great example is my dad was just elected as an elder uh, at our church. They've been members there for, I think, about three or four years. And one of his biggest concerns was, you know, what it would look like to have, you know, if this was like a family business or something, right, with father and son uh, both serving in leadership at the church. And he was very sensitive to that. And if someone had asked his permission before uh, nominating them, he probably would have said no, because I know he's done that a lot in the past. But we use the process that I just described. And when we got all those nominations, he got more nominations than anybody else in the church. Right? And it was this incredible moment where he re- had, he, it was part of his call, right? He realized, well, there's a lot of people here who aren't concerned about that and who want to see me in a greater capacity in ministry. Right? And he talked to a lot of people, got good counsel, worked through that. But that simple fact really moved him over the edge for wanting to serve and feeling like God is calling him. You should also require a minimum number of nominations. I think most churches do this. I found two is sufficient. In our last round of nominations, we had uh, 20 people nominated. About half of those only received one nomination. And in the times we've done this, I found that usually gets, for lack of a better term, rid of a lot of the people that I don't think should be serving. Right? Two is a good threshold. But the other nice thing about that is there's some folks that show potential, right? but they're, they're kind of half in, half out at the church, right? And getting one nomination can really, you can go to them and say, hey, some people see this leadership potential in you. Uh, if you were to recommit yourself to the ministry of the church right, and, and get involved, that can be really motivating for them to serve. And if they keep that up, well, the next time nominations come around, I almost guarantee they'll receive a number of nominations. So that's a nomination process. I want to give an overview of the training before we go into the details. When we walk through the training, you're going to see it's going to be demanding. And people are going to say, it's too much work. (laughs) They, They can't do this. Do not resist the temptation to lower the standards because you think certain candidates might be too busy. If they're too busy for it, it probably means they're not called for it. If they're called to it, they'll find a way to make time for it. You need to create a culture in your church where you see these roles as jobs with real expectations. It's not just a title. It is actually a job that has expectations laid on you. And if you can't meet those requirements, well, you can't serve. Now, a common thing in so many churches is you have people Right? Maybe a guy who's got a heart for ministry, he's involved, but he also has a really demanding job where he's away for half of the time traveling, or he just works crazy hours. And you think, but he could be so good if he's on our session. Here's the, if you lower the requirements for him, I almost guarantee what will happen is it'll actually harm the whole morale of the session because it shows there's different standards for somebody because you think of, they have this great potential. Right? You need, and whereas if you say you can't serve, if you're going to keep up this amount of work, maybe there'll be another time where you can, but serve in these ways, but you can't serve that, you will probably get more ministry done amongst your session without that person than if you change things up to include them. The training, should, you should aim to have at least as much 
uh, basically each week that the candidates are in training, you want it to be at least as hard as a busy season of ministry would be for them. Uh, so as read my biography, I, re I served in the Marine Corps for a number of years, and one of the things that we always said was our goal was to make training harder than real-life combat, so that when you got there, certainly you can't you know, replicate everything, but when you got there, you wouldn't be just flustered because it was way harder than what you did in training. And I think that's a great principle for our officer training. You want to make the training hard so that when the session and the deacons are dealing with difficult things, it doesn't fluster them, but they feel like, I'm ready for this. We've done hard things already. We know how to get through this. And the other key thing is that because how they handle the training is one of the best indicators for their, how they're going to handle the ministry that you give them if they're elected. So if they're always turning in the assignments late, well, that means if you make them uh, you know, the clerk and taking the minutes for your meetings, they will always be turning in the minutes late, right? If they are always needing reminders for what needs to get done, that means they're always going to need reminders for what needs to get done when you ask them to do something in the church. And you want to identify those things during the training, because it is way easier to talk about them during training and address them there than after they're already elected and in. One of the most important things that you can do is maintain high standards for what you expect of your officers. And the people that are called have a surprising way of rising up to those standards uh, and even surprising you with how they do it. One of our deacons who's you know, very self-conscious about there's a lot of reading and writing in the work, and he doesn't have a college education. Uh, he doesn't think he's smart. He is. Uh, he, he hadn't written a paper since high school, which was 30-plus years ago, right, and now he's being asked to do way more than he's ever done, and yet he's like, all right, I can do this, and when we turned in the assignments every week, you know, I'd either get an email from the people or I would get a printed-out stack of papers, uh, but with him, I got a crumpled sheet of college-ruled paper where he hand-wrote every single assignment out on, right? And he probably, his hand cramped incredibly because he hadn't written that much in decades. But it showed his dedication, right, that he felt like he was called to this work, and he found a way to make it work. So how do you answer the objection that the training is too hard? And it's actually very easy to say it's hard to do. The first time you run your training, you need to do every single one of the assignments, and you need to do them all in your off time. Right? That's Leadership by Example 101. And that will have an incredible impact on the candidate's trust of you, your willingness to get in the trenches and do the hard stuff with them, your willingness to do the work. It will build a bond between you and them. If you're doing all the work, you know, in the off hours after your kids go to bed at night, like they are, right, they have no excuse for saying it's too much work, right, unless there's other situations which, well, maybe that's because they're not called for this work. And so what I did is each week I'd get, you know, the, all the assignments from everybody in the classes, and then I would email all of my assignments out to them so they could look at them. Uh, we do a spouse and a peer assessment in it. And so for those, my wife filled out the assessment, uh, and I emailed it to all of them so they could see uh, what she said about me. And the same with one of my neighbors. Uh, the training's going to be tough. 
For us, it's usually about a 50% attrition rate. Uh, but those 50%, most of them back out in the beginning where we're looking at their calling. But those 50% that make it through will be gold. And them suffering together through this thing builds a bond of brotherhood between them. And, and it even in some ways creates something like a right of passage that now it's, it's almost, it's part of the story at our church, right? Of those guys who have gone through it before are the cheerleaders and encouragers of those guys that are going through it now, right? And they build those friendships. One example, uh, one of kind of the, the motivations or ideas I got for this training was going back to the military, boot camp, right? The Marine Corps does about as good as any organization with creating a culture and brotherhood, which leads to so much of their effectiveness. And those who do the training will be able to mentor and encourage the current candidates in helpful ways. What we did this last time is we linked each candidate up with someone who was already serving, right? Who could walk them through the process and encourage them when they're struggling if they can do it or not. All right, let's get even more practical and look at the stages of training. So we've broken up the training into a number of phases. Uh, phase one is what we call the vetting period, which is here where we are doing a deep dive into their character and their calling. Uh, we work through the character qualifications. Now, I've grown to love 1 Timothy 3. I think that is, uh, in seminary, I didn't really appreciate it. The more that I've been in ministry, I think that is such a crucial, crucial passage for the Christian life and leadership. But a common, I think, error is that we think those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 is a job description for elders and deacons. And I think it's important to separate those two, right? When you have a job, you have the qualifications for a job, but then you go down later on in the job posting and it gives you the description of what the job will be, right? Which is more specific. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking just because someone meets these qualifications means they're called to that job. Not necessarily, right? Do they want to, that's kind of the, the pre-qualification, right? If they desire this, it's a noble thing. Do they want that job? So we look at their character. We give every, if the person is married, we send their spouse a link uh, where she fills out a um, character assessment. Uh, it's private, only we get to see it. The candidate doesn't in case, you know, and sometimes they're very honest in there. Uh, we ask about their faithfulness, the candidate's faithfulness, alcohol use, spiritual leadership in the home, self-discipline. Uh, are they not violent physically or verbally? Uh, in this packet, I think there's a copy of that uh, you can look at. We ask the wife, do you think your husband can give four hours a week uh, to the work in the church? We ask the question, if your husband cared for the church like he cares for you and the family, would that make our church a better place or worse place? How or how not? Right? These are crucial questions. We do a peer assessment. Ask them to give us the contact info for a coworker or neighbor who's not a Christian. And ask them again, working through those character qualifications, right? Is this person seem to be devoted to his wife and kids? Does he show self-discipline? Is he humble? Uh, and so on. We ask the, the peer, if you learned this person was a leader in the church, would that give you a positive or negative impact or view of that church? Right? How is their reputation in the community? We also then vet their sense of calling, which is different from the character requirements. We work through a job description of what does it look like to be an elder or a deacon. Uh, this is the work you do. We really want them to wrestle with three things. Do you want to do this? 
I think sometimes there's, that's where there's that gap, right? Every one of us who's a teaching elder, we're here because we wanted to do it. You did a lot of things to get here. We need to have a similar expectation of our elders and deacons are doing it because they want to do it. It is a real call to ministry. Uh, we ask, do they have time to do this? And then are you theologically aligned uh, with our doctrine, right? Are you able to subscribe to our statement of faith uh, and the catechisms? Everybody's going to have concerns at this point, but unless it's a clear no, I encourage them that a lot of those concerns will be worked out as we go through the training. We also keep the names private during this first part of the training. This is where most of the people drop out. And when the names are private, it's a lot easier for them to drop out, right? For all kinds of reasons. Maybe they don't have time. Maybe there's character issues they got to work through. Uh, maybe they just don't want to do it. And a lot of people filter out. No one knows about it. And it, it keeps everything uh, easier. The next phase, which is about 10 weeks long, is a training phase. It's at this point we make all those names public to the church so that people can be praying for the candidates and so they can be observing them in ministry. There's a lot of classroom work during this. Uh, lots of reading, particularly if, uh, if you don't read. We ask them over that period of about, what, 10 or so weeks, the elder candidates read about 1,000 pages, write about 30 pages worth of assignments. Uh, the deacon candidates read about 600 pages, write about 20 pages of assignments. And a common concern, especially with the deacon candidates, is I am a bad reader. I can't read very fast. But I've discovered every time if someone's called, they find a way to do it. We had one candidate in this last round who was nervous about reading. He recently retired. He hadn't read a book in, he couldn't remember how long. And his wife even offered to, she loved reading. She said, well, what if I read you all the books aloud? <laughs> it was what a beautiful picture of his wife encouraging him in that ministry. But he's like, no, this is good. I want to do this. And he got all the reading done. Part of the reason we put this big load on the candidates because it's that character test. How will they react to something difficult? Because how they react to the difficulty of these assignments and work is a great indicator to how they'll react to the difficult parts of ministry. And you want to be able to see that. You want to see, do they run away? Do they avoid? Do they you know, give themselves to it? Are they open about the struggles? Are they hidden about them? You want to observe all of those things. You want to put them in a little bit of a pressure cooker. In this phase, you're also passing on the particular philosophy of ministry at your church. We, in one sense, do a class on and of all the major practical theology topics that you would study in seminary that's focused on how it works at our church. Uh, we have a whole series of articles we wrote about how our worship service is structured that's been put together, and all of the elder candidates read that so they understand why our worship service is the way it is, and so they can buy into that. Next phase is the training phase. This is usually about eight weeks. And this is where they get to use all the things that they were taught. So we have the elder candidates lead worship several times. Uh, we have them all exhort, not preach, but exhort. Uh, one of my goals would be to have a number of our elders licensed in the presbytery, uh, which is an option uh, in the BCO. And what a great way to really honor their call to ministry and show, right, these guys are ministers as well. They do membership interviews. They write newsletters that we send out. They teach classes. They join in hospital and home visits. Uh, every other month, our session meeting is essentially entirely dedicated to praying through every single name in the church. And we give that candidate a list of how many of her names. And so you need to reach out to every single one of these people and ask how you can be praying for them. And then they come and they join us uh, in prayer. 
They attend session meetings. And for every one of these things, they're getting some feedback from us, but then also feedback from the congregation. And then in those last phases, uh, there's a examination. And we, I'd also recommend you check in with the candidate's wife at the end of it. Because for the past six months, when all this has been going on, they've essentially been serving in those roles in a fairly intense situation. Do you still support your husband uh, doing this? How's it been at the home, right? How has he reacted to that stress when he's at home? When you install them, uh, give them something to mark the accomplishment. Uh, there's a big copper mine in the Salt Lake Valley, and I grabbed these rocks from these talus slopes up by the mine that have these just cool colors and streaks of minerals in them. And then I super glue the rocks to a, a piece of wood, so it's like a little you know monument thing, and I give it to each one of those guys when they get installed as a symbol of the weight they are now carrying uh, as they serve in ministry. One of the most rewarding parts is when you see that sense of accomplishment that the guys have in getting through it. Right? One of our new deacons, uh, he and his family just became Christians about uh, three some years ago. Uh, he was baptized in one of those household baptisms, and he had a rough upbringing, uh, but he and his wife have been soaking up the gospel for these last three years. And one of the coolest things was uh, two or so months ago when we had our congregational meeting to vote, and he was just sharing some of this process. And to hear him describe how God has completely upended his life, and he's always struggled with a purpose, he's always struggled with what he's good at, and to see that God has given him a calling to serve as a deacon, and then to see his wife sitting in the congregation beaming with pride because she knows for him to be standing there represents this miraculous word of God, work of God in their life. Right? Those are powerful moments. All right. Last couple things. So there's time for questions. A couple common ones. You like this idea, but you're not sure if your current session is on board. <laughs> I've learned it's better to have no elders and deacons than bad ones, or even ones that just aren't qualified. Good people, but maybe they're not called to serve as elders and deacons. Right? Don't be afraid to becoming a church plant again if necessary. We did that. We had a temporary session. We started over, uh, and God was good to us. Start praying for God to provide good elders and deacons for the church. Pray that God would give your current elders and deacons a, a clear sign if they are called to serve. Pray for people to step down if needed. Start teaching amongst the session. What, are, what does it really mean? What's a biblical view of elders and deacons? It's kind of ironic. I joke that Southern Baptists write some of the best elder books out there right now, right? Because they have to convince other people to become elders, right? To, to set up elders in their church, whereas we just inherit it. In some ways, we need to take on that apologetic sense as well, right? These aren't just things that we've inherited, uh, but it is a privilege to have elders. Um, and God has a remarkable way of working those things out. People might step down on their own. Sometimes people will move. Start working with your session to develop a more robust view of these offices. Um, another great thing is have all of the current session and the deacons, including yourself, go through the training. What a great way to help them figure out if they're called or not, right? And it provides an easy out for those that say, you know what? I, I was able to serve a as an elder in this uh, part of ministry, but maybe, you know, where we're going now, I can't. And it provides just an easy off-ramp with, with little shame. If you don't have qualified people, uh, Ephesians 4 reminds us that leaders are some of the gifts that God gives to his church. 
So pray for God to give those gifts to your church, and you'll probably be surprised how he answers. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.